When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, happy fourth. How the uh, illicit fireworks over on the Venice side of Los Angeles? Oh my God. It was like, um, I mean, it went all night over here. <laughs> Let's just say, like, you don't get a lot. Yeah. Like, Venice, people need to know that. So, when we moved here, once it became summer, like, there were just fireworks all the time. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's just what happens in Venice. People just set off fireworks all summer. It's like a thing over here. So, that- that was a thing last summer too, and I think a lot of cities. But uh, yeah, particularly so in Los Angeles, it looked pretty wild. There were some cool aerial views of planes landing, like as the fireworks are going off. That looked, you know, I, I know the problems with fireworks. I have a dog; she goes nuts. I know they're hard on some people, but as a kid, I was obsessed with fireworks, and I will always love them. And there's nothing I can do to stop that. Well, they do so. these like aerial shots of LA to just show the fireworks that are happening everywhere. You know, in addition to the massive yeah. fireworks show that they have. So yeah, it's it's definitely like people take Fourth of July seriously over here. Yeah, they take it real serious. Uh, speaking of fireworks, got a lot of interesting stuff today. Uh, big development in the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan. Some space news. Uh, a couple of interesting stories out of China. How the Biden team is reportedly rethinking sanctions policy. And there's a growing financial crisis in Lebanon. The Saudi delegation visits D.C. And then we got some fun Olympic news. And then, Ben, you did our interview today. What are folks going to hear? Yeah, I really implore people to stick around for this interview with Rana Ayub, who people have heard on this podcast before. But the basic gist of it is that Rana, over a tweet uh, about an attack on an older man um, that appeared to be motivated by religion, um, is facing all these charges um, in India. She and some other journalists and opposition figures, clearly the next phase in an escalating crackdown on freedom of expression, she's trapped in this kind of legal authoritarian morass. And she walks us through that and then very powerfully explains why she's refusing to back down. Um, so I, I really hope people stay and check it out. It's a powerful, motivating, inspiring, infuriating segment. Just a truly, truly brave human being uh, and powerful to hear her speak every time. Um, so definitely stick around for that. And then also, uh, if you want to check out What a Day This Week, America Dissected's Dr. Abdul El-Sayed joins Akila and Gideon to talk through all the latest on COVID and then what strategies are working to convince people to get vaccinated. So check out What a Day. It drops every weekday and you can listen and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, okay, so let's start with this update out of Afghanistan because you know, last Friday, the United States military announced that it had completely withdrawn from Bagram Airfield, which is this massive, massive base and airfield 40 miles north of Kabul that has basically been the anchor of the U.S. war effort for years. According to the Washington Post, the departing American forces didn't tell the Afghan commander who was supposed to take over the command of the base that they were leaving until they had already left. And the power just went out, water stopped running, and then the U.S. troops were just gone. Pretty shocking, Ben, considering that the base was overrun uh, by looters and 
still includes a prison that holds about 5,000 prisoners. I think most of them are Taliban. So uh, abandoning Bagram is a big deal symbolically. It's also, again, just a massive facility. It's two huge runways, 100 parking spots for fighter jets, a small hospital, and just like tons and tons of stuff that's accumulated over the last 20 years. The Afghan commander said that the U.S. forces had left behind 3.5 million items. That's like from cars and trucks to water bottles to doorknobs, just everything in between. This all comes as the Taliban continues to take territory in northern Afghanistan. Uh, Reuters said that a quarter of Afghanistan's districts have fallen to the Taliban in recent weeks. The BBC reported that in recent days, more than 1,600 Afghan soldiers actually fled across the border into Tajikistan to escape uh, Taliban fighters. So things aren't going well. Then, you know, the U.S. fully departing from Bagram, I think, really hammered home for me that there's just no going back on this decision. Yeah. What do you think the significance is of this uh, withdrawal? And what do you make of this decision by military leaders to like not tell the Afghan leaders who are, who are supposed to take over? Well, I think, first of all, it can't be underscored enough how much Bagram is, is the symbolic and operational home of the American war in Afghanistan in, in a way that I guess in Iraq, it would have been the green zone. I mean, Bagram mm-hmm. is... Everything runs through there. It's this massive base. When we would go with Obama on kind of these secret visits in the middle of the night, that's where he'd go. And then he would, from there, helicopter into Kabul to meet with the president of Afghanistan. He addressed the nation from Bagram. I had to write an address to the nation he gave, literally from that military base. And it had the feel of like a city. You know, it it had the kind of almost absurdity of, of, of how big of a thing the American military can build in the middle of a foreign country. Um tens and tens and tens of thousands of people have flown through there, served there. And, and, and when we were debating, Tommy, in the, at the end of the Obama years, whether to remove all troops or to keep some, right, there was no some option that didn't anchor in Bagram. Like Bagram mm-hmm. might be the one base we could keep. So I think leaving Bagram is, is really the end of the American engagement in this war. I mean, that's what it felt like to a lot of us who've been involved with this over the years. Um, and so there was a finality to that, in part because, you know, if you were ever going to return, like Bagram would be the place that you would you would want, want to have kept to, to do that. In terms of not telling the Afghans, look, it's shitty. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's, I'm sure that here's the reasoning. I'm sure the reasoning is their overwhelming priority leaving is the security of the people leaving and that there's, if there's any risk um, of that information getting out and people knowing our troop movements, that that could put them in danger. But that said, when we've been visiting guests in, these, in this country for this long, and this is like the hub of everything we do, you know, the, the coordination around the handover of the biggest base is kind of a, also a symbol of, of, of respect um, and investment in the future of Afghanistan. And, and so... I understand, you know, the, the the rationales are always force protection. What can we do to minimize any risk to our troops? But it was it was not a good, you know, not a good look. I think to um, to not coordinate that, and obviously it also led to the looting and contributes, I think, to a sense in Afghanistan of like, wait a second, we're really, you know, kind of on our own here, um, which was inevitable when you decide to remove all troops, um, but it doesn't make it any 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 less difficult to manage for, from the Afghan perspective. Yeah, I mean, the the finality of some of these details, I mean, you know, sort of all these big, heavy trucks that are getting left behind, but the U.S. forces are taking the keys because they don't want them, like, stripped or sold to, I don't know, whomever, or, or to be used by Taliban forces if somehow they got a hold of them. But yeah, I mean, there's going to be, a, a, I think, more and more and more stories like this that are really just going to hammer home the finality of the decision. And, 
you know, I think we all have to prepare ourselves for that's going to be there's going to be some really tough stuff. I mean, there's going to be districts that fall to the Taliban. There's going to be uh, incidents where the Afghan security forces just either don't fight or or get defeated militarily. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, there definitely are like echoes of Iraq in, in the end of 2011 when the U.S. Uh, withdrew from Iraq under Obama and then actually went back in uh, several years later because the security situation deteriorated and something I'm sure the Biden team's watching. And I saw Jen Psaki today talking about a you know permanent diplomatic presence in Kabul and all these things they're going to try to do to sort of help the Afghans uh, take on this the entirety of this fight, but it's going to be tough. Yeah, I mean, and look, I think to, to be fair to the Biden team, um, I think the challenge we're seeing are indictment of the, the 20-year war effort. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and, yes. and what happens when you decide to go to war like this in the first place, not like the, just a decision to leave? Because as we've talked sure. about, unless America was going to stay with massively more military force than 2,500 or 5,000 troops, this is the direction that things are going in Afghanistan in any event. Um, and what's so difficult is that this is so far from what we hoped when we went into Afghanistan, from what was promised when we went into places like Iraq and Afghanistan. This was going to happen unless, again, like America is willing to make a multi-decade commitment at a much higher level than a few thousand troops, which I don't think was politically possible. Um, so, like, as people watch this, I think um, you can find fault with the Biden decision if you want. You can criticize ways in which they've implemented it. But the overall circumstances, I think, are much more an indictment of, of this entire of policy choices that were made or not made during those 20 years, or frankly, just the limits of what a military can do. Like the U.S. military can, yeah. can go to a foreign country and it can take some people out. And they took out al-Qaeda. They took out Osama bin Laden. But they can't necessarily go to another country and remake its politics. That, that has not worked. It didn't work in Iraq. It didn't work in Afghanistan. It didn't work in Libya. It hasn't worked in Yemen. It hasn't worked in Somalia. It didn't work in Vietnam. Right? Like we have to internalize this lesson that militaries can destroy things, but it's not their mission. They're not built to, to, to build things. Um, and, and unfortunately, like that is a lesson that that we're seeing on display in these in these you know pretty difficult and tragic uh, images out of Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, no, like I, I agree. I'm not I'm not criticizing the Biden folks. I don't think there was a the political space. I don't think it was in this, our security interest to send thousands more troops to Afghanistan. I mean, wars have to end eventually, or else it's just I I don't even know what it would be. But yeah, um, just sort of everyone has to prepare ourselves for I think um, you know the reports out of Afghanistan to be tough. Uh, for a while, and hopefully, you know, we could do what we can do diplomatically to help them find better footing. But um, yeah, it's just it's hard to read. Let's take uh, a little pivot here to space, Ben, because there's lots of space news this week, and that's always fun. So first, a Mars orbiter launched by the United Arab Emirates sent back pictures of discrete auroras on Mars. Do you know what those are? It is a uh, you've heard of the aurora I've heard borealis, of auroras, maybe, listeners, and I know what discrete means, but I don't know what a discrete <laughs> aurora is. So this is new. so. So the northern lights are the aurora borealis. That's sort of the yeah. northern hemisphere, right? It's when uh, the sun flings charged protons and electrons at the Earth, and the Earth's magnetic field deflects them, and it makes those lights. Mars has a very different magnetic field than the Earth, and it creates a different-looking aurora phenomenon. And the UAE's Hope spacecraft was able to take pictures of it and send them back, so that's very cool. Uh, the second update is more about uh, an intergalactic dick measuring contest between Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, and I guess also Elon Musk. You know, they're all the same sort of thing. So on July 11th, uh, Virgin Galactic founder Richard Branson is going to be a passenger on a test 
suborbital spaceflight, the first one his company does, it means the aircraft is going to reach outer space, but not like escape velocity, like a satellite that would allow it to orbit the globe. Bezos is going to take a trip to suborbital space on his Blue Origin space company ship on July 20th. Uh, the Richard Branson moved up his date. He insists he didn't do it on purpose to screw Bezos, and this isn't a competition between two arrogant billionaires. But uh, Bezos's company is also taking shots at Branson because his rocket doesn't go as high in the atmosphere <laughs> anyway. So here's my question for Small you. Small hands. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where do you land? Where do you land on commercial space flight? Are you ready to hop on, on one of these bad boys? Like you have all the money in the world, literally. You're one of these fucking billionaires. And do you, do you jump on one of the first space flights just to like show up your Forbes I mean, like, compatriots. let's just think about what else these people could be doing with that money, you know, mm. here on, on planet Earth. Well, there's no problems in the world. Right? Exactly. Right. right now. They, they, they could be investing in democracy. They could be investing in the fight against climate change. They could be investing in the fight against homelessness or inequality, uh, the inequality, you know, exacerbated by the policies of companies like Amazon. Right. I mean, they could pay more taxes. They could pay some fucking taxes, right? <laughs> like, they, like instead of uh, like paying zero taxes, right? I mean, I, I just think there's something so dystopian about a, a bunch of massive egos having a dick measuring contest to fly up in the atmosphere and do things that, by the way, are not anywhere near what states can do, right? So it's not like no. they're advancing some massive good for humanity by learning about the origins of life on Mars. They it's like five minutes of weightlessness. Yes. And they're testing out what it's like to be a passenger. Yeah. I mean, I just don't understand like what what social good is is developed by that. And and not, you know, to get tarred as I guess a socialist by, but like there's certain <laughs> things that like governments should do and, and people should not should actually not be rich enough to do. <laughs> like, 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 like the space program should be like a, a communal effort, even an, a globally commun communal effort like the International Space Station, a pooling of resources to develop knowledge for the good and benefit of humankind, right? Like, this is not that. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I gotta say, I, I disagree slightly here because like, I, I think that Elon Musk's company. SpaceX is like doing things that are useful. They're delivering satellites. They're delivering supplies to the space station. They're providing like yeah. okay, NASA-like services. This is space tourism, which I guess is cool. But like one dude, I think, dropped $28 million to get on the first flight. Like, again, talk about someone who needs to be taxed a little bit more. It's that individual. Well, that's the thing. I, like, okay, so SpaceX is an interesting model because it's this kind of public-private partnership and it does yeah. try to contribute Subsidized. to things. And, and look, I guess- if, if Richard Branson, who does some good, by the way, does some good stuff, right? Richard Branson has financed like the elders, you know, the, the, the Nelson Mandela initiated effort to resolve conflicts. I, I, I think there's some good things that he does. Um, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. I guess that is constructive. I like the Post. Yeah, I like the Washington Post. I'm a subscriber. So uh, we're, we're dwelling on the negative here. But that said, like, I, I think you just, it's, it's less on them than more just like, like, how does a society have such rampant inequality that this is even a conversation like that's it's more the structural thing of like why did we get here but then also i think the space tourism thing it does open up interesting ethical questions because on the one hand wow yeah democratizing space like people can go to space that's great but like it seems like the barrier to entry is 28 million dollars like uh if they actually have a plan i guess here's the thing if jeff bezos or richard branson can articulate more concretely how this is benefiting some kind of public good um, and, and how this 
might be an accessible experience for people who can't spend $28 million, like then I, you know, there might be more to listen to. Um, but for the time being, like, you know, we, most human beings have like a greater capacity to experience space travel by seeing like a UFO in the sky than hitching a ride on, on the Bezos mobile. Yeah. I'm cool with, uh, you know, the progress of the technology, just the, the enormous self-regard that goes along with it. It's just, it's just too much and the absurd competition. Uh, speaking of competition, let's turn to China because last week, uh, President Xi Jinping delivered a speech celebrating 100 years of the Chinese Communist Party. Many analysts viewed this speech as basically you know, his stump speech uh, and that next year they expect him, to President Xi, to seek a third five-year term as leader, which is a break from his predecessor, Hu Jintao, who served two terms and sort of set that as the expectation for how long one should serve. In his speech, Xi bragged about uh, crushing dissent in Hong Kong, uh, lifting people out of poverty, and basically told the entire international community that China won't listen to any criticism. Here's one quote for you, Ben. Quote, the Chinese people will never allow foreign forces to bully, oppress, or enslave us. Whoever nurses delusions of doing that will crack their heads and spill blood on the Great Wall of Steel built from the flesh and blood of 1.4 billion Chinese people. Very subtle Mm. stuff there. Uh, On Taiwan, Xi said that, quote, Nobody should underestimate the staunch determination, firm will, and powerful capacity of the Chinese people to defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. Ben, anything in the speech surprised you? Any big takeaways generally from from Xi Jinping and the 100th anniversary event? No, I mean, I, and, and like this, like from having kind of plumbed the depths of the Xi Jinping ideology in working on my book, I mean, this is the direction that he has been going in for some time. You know, and, and here's what I think people have to recognize about it. Like one, like he is a different figure than we have seen, you know, since Mao, really. Um, I mean, in Deng Xiaoping, very strong leader through Tiananmen Square, but then the, the Chinese leaders were the leaders of an autocratic party, but none of them, Hu Jintao, uh, Zheng Zemin, none of them had this kind of cult of personality around them and, and, and were able to change the rules to essentially make themselves indistinguishable from the party. Like Xi is the party. Mm-hmm. The party is Xi. There's a kind of cult of personality around him. Like that's a different strain of kind of authoritarianism, totalitarianism than, than we've even seen. And, and it seems to be escalating as things go on. I think the other thing is this kind of determination to reject any foreign criticism whatsoever um, and to define kind of the most maximalist terms for their approach to Hong Kong and Taiwan. Let's be clear here, right? China violated an international agreement in Hong Kong. They agreed when their handover took place to Chinese sovereignty that for the next 50 years, there would be one country, two systems. The people of Hong Kong would have their own system. They flagrantly violated that agreement. So this isn't a bunch of foreigners coming in and commenting on their internal affairs. This is a situation where against the wishes of the people of Hong Kong and that agreement, and frankly, just anybody who cares about human rights in the world, they're just crushing dissent there. And same thing in Taiwan, like there's been agreed upon U.S. policy, a one China policy, but implicit within that was that Taiwan and and, and mainland China would have to work this out. Um, them just kind of developing the capacity to crush Taiwan and bend them to their will is not what anybody (laughs) has signed up for either, you know? So he's asking like the rest of the world to adjust to basically them being able to do whatever they want with, without any criticism whatsoever. And, and there's no way that the world should 
adjust to that. Uh, as we've talked about, it, whether that's a, the U.S. government or foreign governments, whether that's companies doing business in China, whether that's civil society, whether that's the entertainment industry, like he's trying to, to brush everybody back to just stay out of our business and let us do whatever we want. And I think the danger of that is if you look at what's happening in the Uyghurs and you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, like a government, a regime that has the capacity to do those things tends to do worse things um, in other places, mm -hmm. whether it's within their own territory, whether it's in Taiwan, or whether it ends up being beyond their borders. So, I mean, like, I, I'm not, I don't want to sign us up for the Cold War. I think if we embrace a kind of a national purpose in opposition to China in the same way we did to terrorism, that can lead to dark places. But that doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't be taking very seriously that this is like, you know, this is not the China of even 20 years ago. This is a much more assertive and, and even aggressive leadership. Yeah. And you, you can see it's freaking out the region. I mean, I saw uh, a couple of days ago, or maybe it was today, actually, Japan's deputy prime minister said that uh, the country, Japan, might need to defend Taiwan with the United States if the island was invaded, because they're sort of seeing this as, you know, th that could get to a point where their security is threatened and the existence and survival of Japan is threatened. So there's a lot of, I mean, hearing a uh, the Japanese deputy prime minister say something like that, that explicitly was, was pretty shocking to me. And I, in a sign, I think is of exactly what you just described about how this situation is different. She is different. People are, are, are nervous in a way they weren't necessarily before. Yeah. And, they, and they're being nervous for good reason. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things after Xi Jinping came to power is, you know, the way that the Chinese government had in the past talked about issues like Tibet that they saw as internal affairs. And suddenly the way in which they talked about not just Hong Kong and Taiwan, but even the South China Sea, which extends way beyond any internationally accepted version of China's borders, that began to change too. Uh, and you started to see the Chinese building military structures on distant islands and claiming this whole entire body of water. And so you saw this idea of like their core interests and how they think about their sovereignty extending outward. And that, that has continued. And if you're sitting in Japan and you're thinking, well, I've seen this guy like basically crush dissent in Hong Kong and swallow that up, put a million people in concentration camps. If there's a military invasion of Taiwan that kind of goes really easily, you know, they just kind of roll the planes and tanks into to Taiwan and that's it. You know, why wouldn't history suggest that an increasingly nationalist and assertive leadership that is, has total disregard for international opinion why wouldn't history suggest that they might not go further? Yeah, or sort of like, you know, taking over natural resources and, and things that are not necessarily theirs alone. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of incremental steps that are before like war with Japan, but you're right. I mean, it's certainly the history suggests that this, this threat is growing. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. 
They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org donation. That's unrefugees.org donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. Eh, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Another important, I think, related story out of China is a pattern we're starting to see of the Chinese government going after Chinese technology companies. So on Sunday, the Chinese government ordered the removal of Didi, which is basically an app. It's Uber in China from its domestic app stores. The government accused Didi of illegally collecting users' personal information in what it called a grave violation of the law and regulation. I guess there were some rumors on Chinese social media sites that Didi had turned over user data to the U.S. government. And this crackdown comes just days after DD IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange, raised like $4.5 billion, the most uh, in an IPO of a Chinese company since Alibaba in 2014. Of course, today the stock is way down. Um, Alibaba is another company we've talked about before. They're basically you know, often shorthanded as the Amazon of China. And the Chinese government fined them $2.75 billion back in April. Uh, and then last year, we talked about another incident where Alibaba founder Jack Ma criticized Chinese regulators right before a planned IPO of a financial services company he runs called uh, the Ant Group. That IPO was blocked by the government. Jack Ma disappeared for several months and just sort of popped up recently uh, in January, I believe. And now he has agreed to allowing the central bank to regulate Ant Financial. So Ben, one Bloomberg report I saw estimated that the, the blocked Ant Financial IPO meant it lost $70 billion in value in the process, 70 with a B billion. Uh, So again, like the she speech in this story, I think are pieces of the same puzzle, right? Like Jack Ma was this 
billionaire, powerful person. He criticized the government, slapped down, disappears for months. Uh, Ants Financial, the, this company threatened banks because the, they lended money in a different way. They get slapped down. They get regulated. Like anyone who's threatening she or the Communist Party is getting checked hard. And I guess my question to you is like, I don't know. We're seeing this behavior, right? We're seeing this like aggressive behavior in Hong Kong. We're now seeing this huge risk to corporations that are trying to do business in in China, even Chinese businesses. Uh, Do you think that's going to wake some of these companies up that we've been talking about, right? Because like the ESPNs of the world, the ABCs, others still seem to be bowing to them and, and, and censoring content and things because they want to get into the Chinese market. But it does seem like Xi Jinping is sending the message that like, I could crush your company. I could suck away $70 billion worth of value, and there's just nothing you could do about it. I mean, I think the basic premise is what, what, and this is, again, people have to recognize this is somewhat new. Like, I think there's a, the tendency to think, well, they've always been autocratic. Well, but they tolerated somewhat private companies like Alibaba in China that could generate wealth, having some freedom mm-hmm. of, of action and governance. And they tolerated, to some extent, foreign companies that had different practices. But what we've seen in the last few years is the Chinese government essentially saying, we are the board of every company that operates in China. Yeah, that right, at the end of right. the day, if you don't do everything we say, and if we don't you know, presumably have access to all your data and, and essentially have a, like a, a, a vote, and they actually mandated that, that there be a Chinese Communist Party representative on these boards, um, then you can't do business here. Um, and oh, by the way, uh, if you're a foreign company, you know, you're gonna have to play by our rules too. Um, and, and, and look, this is a, a major shift. And, and if you're a U.S. business and you're looking at this, you have to be thinking, what is the direction that this is going, right? Because already the Chinese are, are making no bones about being more intrusive uh, and, and people who are investing in China are operating in China. Um, the U.S. government is getting more concerned and is starting to try to put restrictions over whether you can invest in in Xinjiang province, where obviously you have the Uyghur genocide taking place, or whether U.S. investments can flow to Chinese surveillance technologies or companies that are dominated by the Chinese military. That's a pretty wide swath of companies here. Um, If you're a U.S. tech company, uh, can you store your data in China and know that it's secure, right? There, there's so many issues implicated here because the U.S. and Chinese economies are so intermingled. I think the main takeaway we have to, to, to wrestle with here is that the Chinese government has kind of demonstrated and drawn lines and said, anybody doing business here is kind of subject to our control. Um, and what U.S. businesses can still operate in China, uh, obviously some are still going to be operating, but like where do we draw these lines? You know, this this word you hear a lot, obviously, decoupling. What, what mm-hmm. do we not want to be subject to that kind of control? What do we have to protect for national security purposes? Are there supply chains that we need to have be secure, like the pharmaceutical supply chains that allow us to develop vaccines without dependence on uh, on China? The semiconductors, the, the, you know, those chips that are so essential to everything you use from the computer in your car to your phone that are heavily manufactured in Taiwan, do we need to be building our own semiconductor industry? So this is a wonky issue, but it is kind of one of the defining issues um, of the next decade. And the Biden team has prioritized this. And I think what you're going to see is, frankly, less and less um, U.S. businesses in China in the same way that they have been in the past. And this kind of disentangling, uh, really, of, of certain supply chains, particularly those involved with technology. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, one way the the Biden team is has tried to respond to China is through sanctions. Yeah. And the Wall Street Journal had an interesting piece today, uh, Tuesday, about President Biden's plan to rethink and revamp the way the U.S. uses sanctions in an effort to reduce, you know, economic damage that can harm average people in a lot of countries and try to ensure that these sanctions are being used in concert with allies and not just unilaterally. So this is part of this broader review. It's supposedly going to be finished uh, near the end of the summer. Um, ben, you know, I think you could argue that sanctions have been overused by both Democratic and Republican yeah. presidents in the Trump era, right? They supercharged the use of sanctions and they often viewed them seemingly as an end of themselves. And, you know, guys like Mike Pompeo would brag about how U.S. sanctions were going to destroy the economy in Venezuela or Iran or sort of name your boogeyman country. What do you think the result of this review should be? Like, what do you think the U.S. can or should do to change the way we use sanctions to make it just better, smarter, more effective? I mean, number one, there's just a general overuse, which, you know, everybody reaches for sanctions to show that they're doing something that undermines their effectiveness, frankly, undermines like the U.S. being like the the dollar being the reserve currency around the world because people are like, America has all this leverage on these sanctions that they just keep overusing. Maybe we should look for alternatives, whether it's Bitcoin mm -hmm. or the Chinese currency. That said, w when I unpack it, the sanctions I'm most concerned about are the ones where we just kind of pile on sanctions on a country in the hopes that that will change things there. Um, Cuba, Iran, Venezuela, and, and people can start, you know, adding me about like how bad those regimes are. I'm saying, well, what about the results? <laughs> like what has been achieved? Like if yeah, you look changed? at the sanctions regime, I mean, Cuba is the most extreme example, like 60 years of just punishing these people and grinding them into extreme poverty. And, and there's nothing, there's no political benefit to it in Cuba. If your goal was to remove the Cuban communist party, they're more entrenched. Same thing with Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, same thing with Iran. So I think- No, Ben, in Iran, we got a much, much worse president. Isn't that, we got a worse that a president <laughs> and they resume their nuclear program when we ratchet back up the sanctions. And so- Oh no, that's bad, you're to, right. To yeah. me, it's like these comprehensive sanctions regimes that we just throw at a country and leave in place forever. That That's the most extreme overuse. And, and, and to admit that to ourselves would to admit that the, this is my whole thing on Cuba, that the underlying premise of the policy was fundamentally flawed, which is that, that isolating a country and just sanctioning them into submission will get them to change. I think where sanctions are important and useful is when you really go after individuals or entities who are responsible for bad things. Um, and, and so that's what we've done in Belarus, what we've done with you know, Putin circle, what we've done even with some Chinese officials. I actually think those sanctions would have greater weight if, if it wasn't like the U.S. is just throwing sanctions out the door constantly. Right. So there's yeah, a place yeah. for sanctions to be this targeted tool of, of imp imposing consequences on people, of marking people as bad actors in the international financial system. But we do ourselves a disservice when, you know, the, uh, we are, are also like there was a. Like the Cuban baseball team couldn't travel to a tournament because of sanctions. Like, what are we right, doing here, right. guys? Like, yeah. uh, and so yeah. the overuse as, 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 to punish whole populations is where I would focus this. Yeah. Uh, a couple more stories before we get to some lighter stuff at the end. So 
the last time I think we probably talked about Lebanon was shortly after that massive explosion in Beirut last August that killed approximately 200 people and just decimated parts of the capital. Now, you know, today, Lebanon is in the midst of a financial crisis that the World Bank says could be among the worst it has seen in nearly 200 years in terms of the impact on just living standards, people's lives. Uh, and Lebanon's currency has lost 90% of its value since 2019. So, you know, there's some, some great reporting on this recently about residents struggling to find food, medicine, waiting in hours and hours long gasoline lines. Even the richest people in the country are enduring frequent blackouts in, you know, super hot weather. Um, Shortly after the explosion happened, the government resigned, the cabinet resigned. But I guess it's just still hanging on there as this caretaker government because the political factions in Lebanon can't agree on a new government to take over. So basically you have the same goons with less power doing less. So it's even worse. Lots of people are leaving the country. I mean, Ben, I know, like, again, Biden's got a ton on his plate. He's got COVID. He's got a billion things. But uh, have you seen any discussions, conversations, anything helpful about what the international community could or should be doing to assist with Lebanon right now and help it from prevent it from completely collapsing. I know there had been talk about maybe some sort of loan, but that was contingent on, you know, a government change, some, some reforms preventing corruption. I just, I I don't know where that is at this point. I think that there's this always this chicken and egg situation in these circumstances where, like the stabilization packages that come from, you know, the IMF or the World Bank or international yeah. lending institutions are so onerous. They require, you know, massive rises in prices and, you know, restructuring of the economy that, that it's no coincidence that nobody wants to be in the new government um, to right. accede to that kind of thing. But that said, right. the international community is also right to say, well, we don't want to just shove a bunch of money into a bunch of incredibly corrupt people who will spend the money and make no changes to try to improve the circumstance. And so it leads to this kind of stalemate. But here's how I look at this. Like, the situation is so dire. And I think the reality is that Lebanon has had to shoulder the burden of a lot of shit that, you know, when you look at a million refugees living there, you look at how they've been impacted by the proxy war in their own country, but surrounding them. I think that the, the ante is a little higher on the international community to not just come in with like the traditional package that says, you know, you have to take all this medicine and, 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 and yeah. you know, I think there has to be a little bit more incentive here um, and a little more just assistance um, to, to kind of help meet some of the basic needs in the country. I obviously should be attached to efforts to try to reduce corruption and, and, and establish some kind of technocratic governing entity that can, can get beyond this mixture of sectarian politics and corruption that's paralyzed the country. I, I'd say that I, it's not easy, but to me, the, no. like that, I think that there should be a little bit more generosity in terms of how the world is looking at this um, and, and a concerted effort to try to not win some sectarian competition in the composition next government, but like let get some people in there who can just kind of have some technocratic expertise to stabilize things, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's been like, what, 10 months basically since a, a near nuclear explosion in the capital of this country. And God, it's just clearly not nearly enough has been done to help them uh, get back on their feet. Um, here's an idea for a country that could cut a big check, Ben, Saudi Arabia. So yeah. uh, according to the Associated Press on Tuesday, the Biden administration hosted a delegation from Saudi Arabia 
that included one of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's brothers. I think he's the deputy defense minister. So these talks were mostly with leaders of the Pentagon. Uh, the Saudi delegation also met with uh, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, a bunch of others at the State Department. Topics reportedly included the war in Yemen uh, and the Iran nuclear deal. This was the highest level Saudi visit since the intelligence community released its report into the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi government uh, at at the behest of uh, Mohammed bin Salman or MBS. So, Ben, you know, I, I think you and I had a very similar initial reaction to this news, which was not announced. It just sort of was reported out, which is just gross. Yeah. Gross, shitty, shitty, gross people. Um, but I also understand that, you know, we have to work with the Saudis on a bunch of important stuff. What do you make of this meeting? Too soon? Uh, has to happen. Like, I don't know, if you're in government and you're just, you know, being pushed into some sort of like real politic mindset, like where does this land? I just look, Tommy, I I continue to come down that like, I can't, you know, write a book like I just wrote about democracy basically being (laughs) receding everywhere, this kind of rising tide of authoritarianism and, and, and America's, you know, diminished credibility in speaking up for democracy I just don't think you can do this and say that, you know, we're back, we're promoting democracy. I, I you know, it's hard. I get, look, I, I'm, I'm sure the Biden people might say, hey, Ben, what about Lebanon? You're just talking about this. These Saudis can write big checks for Lebanon. We got to talk to them, get them to do I get that. But at a certain point, like, you just have to say, like, because this guy's MBS's brother, very close advisor. Like, this is basically the closest thing to having MBS, you know, in the country. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't do it. Um, and if you have to talk to him, you can talk to him. You can send someone, you know, a diplomat to Riyadh. Like it just conveys a sense of of a gradual normalization um, of of the Saudi government and governing family. Let's keep in mind it's, it's a group of people um, that that violated the most basic human right possible: the right to be alive in a third country uh, with an opinion. You know, and and yeah. at the same time that we're saying. We all have to sanction uh, Belarus over diverting an airliner to silence a critic, to have the people that silence a critic in Washington. It just undercuts that message. And I'm sympathetic to, to how hard this is, but I just think at a certain point, give yourself the clarity of saying like, you know what, we're, we're for democracy and there's just a higher threshold for who we engage because we recognize it sends a message to the world. So. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm sure they're doing, you know, the, the, they're trying to get them to end the war in Yemen and and to, to contribute on Lebanon and what have you. But frankly, they should be doing that like anyway. It, they shouldn't be doing that as a favor to us. And uh, we, they can't do the war in Yemen without us. Uh, I think like, you know, drawing some lines with these folks is is ultimately going to be more effective in the long run anyway, even if it creates uh, a lot of problems in the short run. Yeah, maybe do this one via Skype. I don't know. Yeah. What, yeah. what do I know? <laughs> I've, been, I've been out of government a long time. Uh, a couple well, well, Olympic well, well, things put it to this close way. out. If you can announce me. the meeting, it's a bit of a tell that maybe, you know, like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That kind of jumped out of me too. Okay. Some Olympic stuff. Olympic grab bag here. So uh, one story that caught my eye. Bloomberg had a piece about how unbelievably difficult it is for a lot of the athletes to get to Japan for the the games this year because of COVID restrictions uh, yeah, and airline yeah. schedules generally. Did you see this? So yeah. 
The athletes from Fiji had to fly on a cargo plane that normally transports seafood. That was the only way they could get there. Some teams had to fly literally thousands of miles in the wrong direction because the cities where they would normally connect won't allow them in because their countries have uh, high COVID cases. There have been some incidents of athletes testing positive for coronavirus after they get to Japan. So uh, just really rough on these athletes. It sucks. We feel for them. Also, Maybe just as exhausting as the game's been is the impending conversation about efforts to censor protests at the Olympics. So the rules are a little, they're hard to follow this year. The U.S. Olympic Committee said it will not punish protests or speech at the Olympics as long as it's not attacking or targeting a group. The IOC says you can express your views before or after competition, but not during events, not during victory ceremonies or at the Olympic Village. So you really don't have freedom to protest. Um, already we are seeing right-wing idiots making up reasons to be mad. Today it was our old friend Rick Grinnell uh, and a bunch of his buddies trying to claim that some members of the U.S. women's soccer team turned away from a veteran who was playing uh, the national anthem on a harmonica, I believe. It turns out the women on the U.S. soccer team turned to face the American flag, which is what I, I assume That's Rick Grinnell would to, want. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like this This is just the perfect example, right? of how these are right-wing trolls who want to be mad about something and there's no facts can change that. Any thoughts on how we all can prevent these assholes from like politicizing the sports we love and just, you know, like tune them out, these bad faith criticisms, et cetera? No. Uh, cause, yeah, uh, I don't either. Uh, I got nothing. Uh, well, I, I guess that what I've got is that like, can we just be like fucking into our athletes? Like, you know, the, know. we went this when the U.S. women's team won the, won, won the soccer World Cup, and it's like, I I thought the patriotic thing used to be like rooting for your people and being excited when they win, not like demanding that they align completely with, with. Look, there are gonna be some athletes who win who don't agree with my politics. Like, I'll be glad like that America won some competition. Like, I, like the idea that you know, you're going to apply this kind of Rick Grinnell test to athletes who, by the way, like, and I've thought a lot about this time, like the creative athletes and creative people, like they're, they're not like by and large MAGA types because the kind of like free thinking and innovation and creativity that it takes to excel as an athlete in a lot of sports. And certainly as a, as a creator, like doesn't lend itself to being like, you know, some MAGA disciple. Like, just fucking deal with that. I mean, uh, like, it's it's like it's like these people are still mad that they weren't like athletes in high school or something, and and they're like they're taking it out on the world, know. you know? Like, like just just leave us alone. I mean, I, I this is a different one, but like their search for this is 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 what is so insane. Like, I saw yeah. some controversy on Fox recently. Like Macy Gray had said we need like a new flag or something. I haven't thought about Macy Gray in about fifteen years. You know, but like they'll just take any athlete like, yeah, they're not like, I mean, it's kind of fascistic. Like, like these athletes yeah. are, are not like robotically, you know, genuflecting before the flag sufficiently. So we will cancel them. Like it's kind of very un-American. It is un-American. I mean, I'm glad the U.S. Olympic Committee changed its rules to allow for protests. That's obviously the American thing to do. I think the IOC is stupid. Obviously, the uh, the substance abuse rules are ridiculous. The fact that testing positive for marijuana can get you thrown at the Olympics is possibly the, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But yeah, it is just a good reminder that 
There's going to be a bunch of right-wingers who want to politicize sports, who want to tell mostly black athletes how or when they can say what they want to say, and that they are trolls. They don't care about the facts. I think we're probably going to have to – I don't think we can shut them down. Too might have to tune them out and just support these athletes uh, when they need us because – you know, Fox and Friends is going to try to waste your time and, and pull you into a conversation that's about their version of America and accepting all the things they believe. And it's just it's not how the country works. Well, and a- ask yourself why these protests are happening in the first place. Like the Olympics have been going on right. for a long time. Like there's a reason there's more protests now because there's more to be upset about. <laughs> there's more injustice. There's more inequality. There's more racial injustice. And athletes are reflective of the society in that regard. I do think, Tommy, it's like important that we get the back of the athletes that they get kind yeah, of canceled by the, the right. Athletes. Because, you know, yep. as much as I would like these things to be resolved through kind of uh, like just the, the competition of democracy, the reality is the right is going to try to impose an economic cost on athletes who express themselves and deny them a following, deny them sponsorship deals. And frankly, I think it's important as was done with like Megan Rapinoe, that the rest of us like lift up that athlete and say, no, actually, like you have an audience, you have people who have your back because then that allows other athletes to be confident that they're not going to lose their whole career by saying what they think. So it may sound yeah. like un- unappetizing that it's kind of a capitalist way of of supporting athletes, but but it, I, I do think it's just, we need to send a signal that that people can't get canceled for protesting. Yeah, I agree. For, for just talking about what you believe. Uh, okay, in a, in a more fun vein, Ben, I just I went through the entire list on the teamusa.org website today and just pulled out three athletes just for fun. I'm going to tell you about them, and we all can just find them and root for them whenever they come on the TV. I know nothing about their beliefs. They just seem cool to me. So uh, here's one. Lex Gillette. He's from North Carolina. You got me with the He's name. Competing. You got me with the name. Badass name. Competing in the long jump in the Paralympic Games, he is the best totally blind long jumper and triple jumper in the history of the U.S. Paralympics. He's the current world record holder in the long jump where he jumped 22 feet. 22 feet. Fucking incredible. Uh, Here's another one to remember, another name to remember. Vashti Cunningham. Uh, She is from Las Vegas, Nevada. She competed in Rio in 2016, uh, and that's her one time in the Olympics. You might have heard of her dad, who was Randall Cunningham, Ooh. an absolutely Whoa. Whoa. badass yes. NFL quarterback. Yeah, the, the family is just obscenely athletic. Yeah, uh, She's competing in the high jump, if I forgot to say that, from Bishop Gorman High School in Las Vegas. So that is a name I will watch. Last one, Anita Alvarez. I did it alphabetically, Ben. She was the first one I saw. She's from Kenmore, New York, competing as a synchronized swimmer. Uh, her bio on the Team USA site, Includes the fact that she stepped on Michelle Obama's foot during a White House visit. So we wanted to give her a shout out and let her know that I'm sure Michelle was cool with that. Uh, Anita, we are rooting for you here on Pod Save the World. So tweet at us. We want to hear more about you. And if you, if folks out there have any athletes they want to nominate, I went all Team USA today. But if there, there's uh, athletes from around the world they want to talk about, nominate to get talked about, let us know. And just remind yourself that like one of the cool things about learning all these athlete stories is like, they come from all these different places that you don't know. You learn about places. You learn about different experiences that people are having in the country. It's one of the things that knits together like a sense of national identity because these people like America like are made up of incredible differences, which is very cool. And then globally, you learn the story of these athletes. Like I want to know that I want someone to make the documentary about the Fiji team that had to fly on the cargo plane. You know, like yeah. uh, it's just a great way to learn about your fellow human beings. You know, that's why I love the yeah. Olympics. Totally. Lex Gillette. Vashti Cunningham, Anita Alvarez, 
Pod Save the World stamp of approval. <laughs> Blind. I mean, to 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 be to excel like at something like that, um, I, you know, w- without your eyesight, like a, you know. Yeah. Like, I, so I was reading about him. I, I guess you know he started to have sort of a deterioration in his in his, um, in his eyes at about age eight. Had ten surgeries over time, became fully blind, and just sort of like learned to compete, practice, train in all these events. By sort of, I think having a parent sort of like coach you with sound about where to where to run and how to you know sort of correct yourself if you veer off course. I mean, it's just an unbelievable thing to adapt to be able to do and ultimately jump twenty two feet in the air. Uh, just astounding. So anyway, excited about the Olympics. I uh, can't wait to watch the games. And when we come back from this break, we will have Ben's interview with Rana Ayub uh, about efforts by the Indian government to silence her, to silence dissent generally. So stick around for that. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com enjoy your edible <laughs> legal disclaimer paid for by vote save america vote save not authorized by any candidate or candidates committee well we are uh, very pleased uh, to be joined again uh, by uh, my friend rana ayub who's an indian journalist and a washington post global opinions writer um and one of the most tenacious and uh, incredible journalists uh, i've i've Matt. Uh, Rana, uh, thanks so much for for joining us again. Always a pleasure to be talking to you, Ben, and to be on the show back again. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot's uh, happened, obviously, in India, but but with you as well. Um, And so I I really wanted to just start by, um, you know, bringing our listeners up to date with uh, the charges you are facing, uh, really just over a a tweet. Um, So, uh, could you kind of give us just the background of basically what what's happened to you the last couple of weeks? Right. Why you are facing 
these charges and, and what they are? Right. Well, Ben, it's been like the most dramatic three weeks for me. So around the 14th of June, um, there was this video of a hate crime against a Muslim man. Uh, and we are familiar with, you know, hate crimes happening against Muslims in India. So there, there appeared a video on social media where a Muslim man was being beaten up and his beard was chopped. And a couple of hours later, another video was posted in which this man apparently did a Facebook Live and he said he was made to chant uh, the Hindu slogan, Glory to Lord Ram, Jai Shri Ram. Uh, so everybody spoke about it. The Indian Express, Times of India, Republic, Times Now, every Indian news channel, uh, every publication, every journalist that existed in the country. I saw it. I also tweeted saying, you know, this is humiliating. And this just numbed me that, you know, a, a, you know an old man has been attacked in this way. Um, and the next, and of course, the entire Twitter was outraged. Everyone was, was outraged because, uh, you know, you see an elderly man being beaten mercilessly. And he himself is saying that he was made to chant uh, religious slogans and it's a hate crime. So we all tweeted about it. Um, next day, the state police uh, put out a tweet saying that we have arrested people. We do. I mean, that this is not the version of the story. To be on the safer side, a lot of us deleted that tweet. Although the mainstream media news channels, the, a lot of publications still have that tweet on, still have those stories on, because every publication in India spoke about it. But uh, a first information report, uh, uh, we were booked, I along with um, two other journalists, uh, with a politician, with a social activist, and a news publication on Twitter, were booked for promoting communal enmity and creating a riot-like situation. And uh, and basically upsetting uh, the the harmony of the nation and 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 I'm like, hang on, what does it even mean? One, we deleted the tweet. We also said that you know there is a side that the victim has said. You have to hear his story, and please investigate the case thoroughly, thoroughly like any other journalist would have said. And the next day, uh, I am. I had to, that there was huge, I was on television channels all day. Although there were many accused, the one picture, one person whose picture went down throughout the day on multiple news channels was mine. And my father, who has had two brain strokes, was dementia. And, uh, you know, he was watching and he started, he broke down. He said, what's happening to my daughter? So my lawyer said, and everybody started clamoring on social media saying, arrest these people, these journalists, especially me. They have been uh, trying to defame India on an international level. These are people like somebody, uh, somebody from the right wing in India specifically wrote, this is the woman who wrote the Time magazine cover. This is the woman who went on BBC and CNN. She must be arrested for defaming India. All sorts, God knows what. And I, uh, um, as a precautionary measure, I approached the Bombay High Court and got bail. Uh, I was asked to switch off my phone. And it felt like I was censoring my own voice, but I there was nothing wrong. I did not promote. I'm somebody who's been doing relief work for migrants and laborers between last year and this year. I broke my spine doing that. So to be accused of promoting communal enmity and... Uh, so I have recorded my statement before the cops today. And when I was exiting the police station, the media, the way they hounded me saying, what do you feel about your tweet? I was made to feel like, hang on, am I a criminal? What does it even mean? And the people who were questioning me, the news publication themselves tweeted about the same incident and they are yet to delete that tweet. So I'm just trying to look at the privilege of being a mainstream media publication who uh, are not publishing critical stories. While this was happening, 
I received multiple uh, multiple summons from central government agencies who I cannot disclose now because it's still under investigation. The summons were sent to me. The summons were sent to my sister. The summons were sent to my father, who is who is a seventy five year old man who does not remember half of the things. And um, when I appeared before the agencies yesterday for five hours, the questions that were asked to me were, "Why do you only work for international media? Who owns Washington Post?" And I said, "Hang on, just Google, and you will know who owns Washington Post." Uh, I'm joining Substack, so I was asked, "Who gave me the job offer?" Did Substack approach me, or I approached Substack? I was asked to provide emails of my employ and of my email exchange of my exchanges with Substack. I was asked if Washington Post deliberately was trying to create discontent in India, was trying to malign Narendra Modi's image. I was asked why did I write the Time magazine cover? And I'm trying to understand since when did journalism become a crime? And these are agencies which are supposed to deal with criminals. And here am I being yeah. asked questions about my journalism. So th- th- uh, this is so crazy. Um, so basically, just to summarize, there's a very prominent attack on this elderly man. Uh, lots of people are tweeting about it. You're one of them. Right. Uh, you and a couple other journalists and, and three Congress politicians are, are basically charged with kind of inciting intercommunal violence just because you tweeted about yeah. this attack. Um and you're the focus of this, and I'll, I'll get back to that. But what risk are you facing? I mean, what what is what what do these charges carry with it? What what do you think the uh, well, yeah, just like what 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 is the extent of the risk that you currently face for just being a journalist who tweeted? Uh, I face uh, probably depending on how the investigation goes, there could be a jail sentence for three to six years, uh, depending on how the investigation goes, and depending on whether they find my answers satisfactory or not. Uh, the moment I left the police station today, I got a call. I have a very frantic call from my sister. She said, "Why am I getting notices?" And I said, "What have you done?" She said, "I don't know. Why am I getting yeah. notices?" And that completely, uh, you know, I have to now. I'm running from pillar to post to fight multiple cases, and I'm like, it's not that I don't know what will be the outcome of it. But one thing is for sure: for the next few days, weeks, I won't be able to do any journalism because. You are. We have filed a case against. You have sent summons to my father. I have to appear on his behalf because he's suffering from dementia. I have no idea. It's a very uncertain future, Ben. I really don't know. I really don't know if I could be jailed. I really don't know if I will not be jailed. I really don't know what's the price my family will have to pay. I really don't know what's the price that I will have to pay. I don't know how probably I'll be maligned in, in multiple publications. Uh, probably there will be leaks to media. I have no idea, but the, the 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 attempt and the intent certainly seems to be intimidation, and and that seems to be working. Well, uh, you know, it's um, and this seems connected in a way, uh, although you never know exactly why things happen. But you did publish this Time magazine cover right. um, about right. uh, you know the Modi government's kind of failure to prepare for and respond to this uh, wave of, of COVID. Um, I, I tell people, because uh, I noticed this on, on Twitter myself, but the, what the kind of response to that piece was from, you know, the kind of pro-Modi uh, media trolls uh, and the apparatus in India and how that might be connected to the, the pressure you're under right. now. So when I published the Time magazine cover and subsequently I wrote this piece for Washington Post and then I was appearing on CNN and BBC on multiple shows, there was a Twitter trend on how I was working 
for the CIA. Now, I am just trying to understand how bizarre that is. Yeah. That how the CIA is trying to destabilize India using journalists like me and also naming other publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the BBC, accusing every international publication of discrediting Modi and maligning his image for his mismanagement of COVID-19. Oh, somebody who is a very uh, pro-government lackey, Mr. Mohandas Pai, he goes on one of India's leading news channel, Times Now, and calls me by name a vulture journalist for printing pictures of the crematoriums on the cover of Time magazine. And he calls and Time, Times Now does an entire one hour show on how international media, whether it is New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Limor, The Australian, everybody seems to have an agenda. And as somebody who has often been vocal of my criticism of Narendra Modi, uh, I seem to have been picked up for this task that, you know, you and it's not the first time somebody who's written a Time magazine cover has been picked up. Artish Tasir, uh, who wrote a Time magazine cover called uh, on Modi, which was called Divider in Chief, uh, I remember. Uh, he said on Twitter that his OCI card, his, his residency card to India was revoked. Now, that's reasons known best to him, but he says it was censorship. In my case, I know there's nothing that they have done related. But everything seems to have started with Twitter trolls saying, uh, investigate Rana, you uh, tagging various agencies saying, please send summons to her. And then ironically, the summons come to me. So I wonder if these Twitter trolls, these right wingers are literally running the narrative. And I am clearly, clearly paying the price of this, of my reportage during the second wave of the Delta variant, because uh, me and multiple other journalists who are being stellar reporting, I think some of a lot of ground journalists have been putting India and India's story that the world needs to know. And I spoke about the undercounting of deaths, like the way deaths in India were being... I spoke on your show as well, on the podcast. Yeah. I went to the Christiana Man for show. I went on BBC. I went on multiple, every news channel. And I spoke about what I saw on the ground. Now, that's what journalists need to do. They need to speak truth to power. I have done nothing. Uh, I have written a cover which was, which, uh, which was widely read. Uh, so it is not something that I have reported on previous regimes also in, in, in the Congress regime before Narendra Modi was in power. Yeah. I have criticized earlier regimes also. That is my job yeah. as a journalist. I'm not here to be somebody's cheerleader. I'm here as a, as, a, as a true patriot of this country. My job demands that I speak for people of this country, not for those who govern me. So I thought yeah. I was speaking for the people of this country. I was giving them a voice. I was being a voice for the voiceless. Never did I never did I think that there would be a backlash of this nature. I mean, it's interesting to me too because um, you know Narendra Modi uses Twitter uh, to great effect, as does uh, his his following, um, and yet here he is kind of trying to make Twitter an enemy and control it. Narendra Modi courts positive. Uh, coverage from Time Magazine. Right. <laughs> so, so what's very, very interesting about this kind of blend of of someone who kind of got elected in a democracy and wants to use the organs of the media to suit himself while controlling them, it, it feels like a a, a much more, a, particularly with Twitter, where he's kind of essentially aiming to be able to determine what's on the platform and what's not. It, it feels like he's trying to to turn these you know, what, what are usually seen as democratic institutions, the media, right, right. into kind of an authoritarian mouthpiece in a way. Absolutely. I mean, 
uh, I am not I have I'm not the least bit sympathetic towards Twitter because I'm like you guys have been enabling yeah. teams all over the world. So I have no sympathy for Twitter for that matter. But I do believe that what is happening, what is what the government's reaction to Twitter is basically an attack on free speech. Now, Indians were really celebrating and the world was celebrating when Twitter suspended the account of Donald Trump. So if uh, if Twitter um, flags the tweets of BJP ministers, of ministers in the government uh, who are publishing fake news and, and Twitter labels it as manipulated media, that should not be labeled a crime. That is not a crime. And a fact-checking, uh, 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 a fact-checking website in India called Alt News published an entire narrative on how uh, the ruling party published fake videos, which were later shared on Twitter. Uh, there was an offensive against Alt News for uh, for doing this fact check and labeling them as as kind of uh, enablers of the opposition, enablers of Twitter, and running a foreign agenda. So it seems like um, the government is trying to hit too many targets with the same stone. It's trying to attack. It's trying to target Twitter. It's trying to target journalists who have been dissenters. Um, Mr. Modi needs to decide for himself. Like he speaks at the G7 summit, so talks about freedom of speech, freedom of expression, talks about not censoring internet, not censoring, talking about democratic values. But here, on the other hand, you are punishing people for one tweet selectively. You are sending summons to journalists. I need to understand what kind of free speech is this? And why should I? I am telling, I, can, I know for a fact, Ben, that I'm giving this interview. And when this is published, there's going to be a backlash. I'll be accused of, yeah. of, of some kind of, but I'm speaking. I know there will be a backlash. And I've still chosen to speak to you today because my silence has for far too long been seen as my complicity. My silence is not yeah. my complicity. I have been trying to cooperate with the law. I respect the law of the land, which is why I've been silent for the last three weeks. But I had to speak out in the Washington Post and I have to speak to you because my silence is being construed as somebody who has taken responsibility for actually maligning Modi, somebody who's actually spreading communal disharmony in the country. My silence is enabling fake news in the country uh, about this entire case. My silence is making sure that I, I come across as an accused rather than a victim. So I am breaking my silence and I know there will be consequences. I know that there could be possible consequences from the government. There could be consequences from the investigating agency. There could be consequences from my family. But that's what journalism is about. We do not, we do not, and we cannot be silenced by intimidation. And if these people who are trying to silence me believe that they can intimidate me, then I would not be doing the journalism all this while that I'm doing. It's a choice yeah. that I've made. Well, how do you how do you make that choice? I'm sure a lot of people listening around. On the one end, you're, you're just you're operating like a journalist in a democracy. You right. haven't done anything different than any journalist in any, yeah. in any democracy would do. You report right. on things. You sometimes you comment on things, have opinions about things. None of which are outside of like really the normal discourse in most democracies. And it, yet, it feels like the whole world is changing around you. Um, but but how do you get that motivation to? to speak out and to keep going, I mean, uh, and to take take those risks. Where, where does that come from? I don't know, Ben. Honestly, some days I do break down. Like today, I was 
I was at the police station. I was dealing with my mom, my mom's my mom calling me saying your dad wants to video call you to check if you are okay because you are going to the cop because you were sitting at the investigation agency yesterday before I flew to Delhi. My sister is calling saying, "Listen, I received this notice." My brother is calling because my lawyers back in Bombay are calling, and I'm like, you know what? Is it really worth it? Let me just lead a comfortable life. Let me just take a fellowship and go somewhere yeah. and just disappear. But then there are people who write emails to me saying they see a ray of hope in me. and i see me and other many unsung journalists local media who who might be censored by gatekeepers as the ray of hope in a country the world's largest democracy which is trying to retain freedom of speech in a country which is trying to retain a semblance of freedom of expression in the country running away is not the solution running away i mean i have a i have a responsibility to this profession i just cannot run away when it gets difficult uh if i choose i when i get all the awards and i i feel i i bask in the glory of it when i'm when i'm uh, when i'm appreciated i bask in the glory so yes these are tough times uh, and i have to face it there are people random strangers on instagram and twitter and who send out tweets to me saying i want to name my daughter after you and that feels like instantly in that moment you're like how do you let these people down they trust you they trust you to speak truth to power how do you let them down there are people in this country and it's not just about my community which i have often accused of including by the investigating agencies if i report certain things because i'm a muslim no i do not yes i happen to be a part of the community yes this is my lived experience and nobody can deny my lived experience but i also speak for the marginalized i i want to be the voice of the voiceless and this is not a journalism that i started yesterday i've been doing this journalism for the last 14 years so um so yes i don't know what keeps me going ben but there's nothing better that i think that i can do in life yeah. is this to do yeah. what i do uh, is to write and report and i don't know if anything else to do in life i don't have any other skills that i guess but i think there are <laughs> people in this country there are people in this country who really um, want me to do this and i think i'm doing it for them this is uh, the government might consider it anti national but i consider it the highest form of patriotism yeah yeah no i think so and and knowing you i mean i, I you know it's you have an incredible kind of spirit that just motivates you forward i you know one of the complicated things i was going to ask you what what can people do who want you know feel a sense of solidarity with you what would you like journalists to be doing to support you in india and around the world i all the, the complicated thing right is it as in lots of cases um where there's an, an authoritarian bent to things the support you get from out of the country is cast as nefarious Absolutely. as you know uh undermining of india when it's it's not it's just people who su- want to support journalism everywhere want to support the idea of the truth everywhere want to support people who are giving voice to the voiceless everywhere um so how do you balance that what do you, what do you what do you say to people who want to express solidarity want to support you recognizing that that any support that you get from out of the country can be you know dis- distorted there i mean what would you say to people uh, about the ways in which they can support press freedom in india and 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 rana you have been this difficult moment right I think Ben, anybody who speaks who speaks the unpopular truth anywhere in the world, I mean, uh, they will be labeled. They will be given labels. They will be they will be called agents of a certain regime. They will be called. Uh, they will be accused of destabilizing. But I believe that the unpopular truth has to be spoken time and again because it it it's it, the unpopular truth needs to amplify it. I find myself complicit in not speaking enough sometimes for fellow journalists across the world whether they are in Philippines or whether they are in, in Turkey 
these are journalists yeah. who should who we need to speak more often about probably i don't speak as much about them uh, as i should be uh, i have found myself complicit of not probably speaking louder for my colleagues in india as i should have although i've tried my best i think it's not just about me ben i think everybody in the world should be considered for press freedom in the yeah. country because if the world's largest democracy goes down under then ripples will be felt by the world it's 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 not something that only india will have to suffer it will have consequences for the world so i think every journalist in the country every everybody who believes in freedom of expression freedom of free speech should speak not just for me but also every journalist in the country who's trying to do their respective job should speak for journalists all over the world who's trying to do their respective jobs in the face of immense pressure and that's the least we can do i know we will always be i will be demonized i know i know a part of a section of people will always see me as the villain but i'm not here to be popular i mean no. nobody wants to be i'm not here like i always say this I don't want to be popular. Yes, I I know I'm going to be demonized for this. I'm I'm going to be demonized for this interview saying I'm giving another interview to another international publication, but that's how it is. That's how truth is. Truth is not glamorous. Truth is uh truth is not good looking. Truth is how how it should be. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a convenient way to 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 silence people. It's just so you can't I mean the I I you know, I I I hope you know that the uh, um uh all that, all that trolling, all that that hate is more reflection of the people that uh, that do it, and has no reflection on on you whatsoever, Rana. Absolutely. Um, um, well, look, I, I thanks so much for keeping us updated. We will keep our attention on this. I will say that this does feel like kind of ground zero for for press freedom in the world, as you say, the the world's largest democracy. Um, uh, it's so precious to democracy globally, and I should say to people, you know, given the risk you're willing to take. Um, I think that that makes all of us should make all of us consider um, in this country and other countries. People listen to this podcast around the world. You know um, that that you know we we can do better by by uh, press freedom and democracy too. Um, but th- thanks so much, Rana, for for joining us. Any last words you want to leave us with here? Uh, we'll be watching your case and keeping in touch, of course. I just want to tell the world that um, I cannot be silent. So anybody who's trying to intimidate me, anybody who's trying to pressurize me, anybody who thinks that all these mind games will kind of silence me, no, I'm not going to be silenced. I'm starting a new gig beginning 15th of July. I'm going to be on the ground. I'm going to be reporting. I'm spe- going to speak for the people. So nothing that I do will ever stop. And I stand with the people of this country. And I stand for free speech, and I always will. And where can people follow your work? Uh, you, you know, I'll uh, be the Washington Post, obviously. Yes, you, uh, I'll be starting. I'll be I'll be starting my own Substack from the fifteenth of July, where people can find me, where people can find my reports. I'll be starting um, uh, um, investigations, long form reportage, interviews. Fifteenth of July. Besides Washington Post, people can find me on Substack. So that's my entry, and which is why I was also asked by the investigating agency, "What is Substack?" So for all those who are watching, yeah. that's where I will be from the fifteenth of July. Yeah, and Substack is something that allows people to have a voice wherever they are. Absolutely, that's all. Uh, that's Absolutely. all. So people should definitely check that out. Um, okay, well, thanks so much, Rana, and uh, we'll be in touch, and we'll we'll keep our you know we'll keep our attention on this. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. As always. Thanks again, Rana, for joining the show. Uh, thanks to all the people who lit off fireworks before 11 p.m. <laughs> yeah, a little less psyched yeah. with all the people who lit them up yeah. after 11 p.m. You know, preferably don't do it near a, uh, a a tinderbox of a palm tree. Saw a couple of videos of those. Not good. 
little too dry out here, Ben. My grandfather, uh, who was like, you know, uh, like a New York Jewish, hard living, fun guy. Um, he had like a, a saying in life, um, that, uh, and he was talking about two in the morning, which is much later than 11 PM. Um, <laughs> But he was always like, if you can't get it done by two in the morning, you shouldn't be out anymore. You know, um, <laughs> you can adjust that a little earlier. You probably adjust it to midnight, but it's a pretty good rule to live by. There's a certain point where if like you have not achieved the goal of the evening, whether it involved fireworks or ingesting substances or whatever it is, um, uh, you know, falling in love, uh, to put it uh, gently, like it's time to go home, you know. And so if Word. the people in Venice who were putting off fireworks at three o'clock in the morning, if you hadn't. If you hadn't gotten that done by midnight, like you should probably just not do it. If you hadn't gotten your fill of explosions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Words to live by, 2 a.m. I like that. Uh, that's it for the show this week. Talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 